Welcome to the South Carolina State Library's podcast, Library Voices SC. I'm Curtis Rogers, Communications Director, and today I'm pleased to have with us in our virtual podcast studio, Dr. Rhonda Robinson Thomas. Dr. Thomas is the Calhoun Lemon Professor of Literature at Clemson University, specializing in early African-American literature, culture, and history. She is the author of Claiming Exodus, A Cultural History of Afro-Atlantic Identity, 1774 to 1903, and co-editor of The South Carolina Roots of African-American Thought, a reader. Her most recent publication by the University of Iowa Press is Call My Name, Clemson, documenting the Black experience at an American university community. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Curtis. I'm really happy to be here. It's great to be able to talk to you today. So give our listeners a little bit of an overview of Call My Name and how, how did the whole project start? The project actually started, I like to say on my first day of work at Clemson back in 2007. Uh, I arrived at Clemson as a postdoc, which meant uh, I was going to be working there, doing research, teaching for about three years. And on that very first day on campus, my new colleague, Dr. Uh, Mike Lemahue met me in the parking lot, walked me to our office building, showed me where our classrooms were located, where the library is, Cooper Library, Strode Tower, Daniel Hall. And then he said, I need to show you something. And we walked toward um, what seemed like the center of campus. And when we got there, he asked me to look up a hill. And I was, I was looking up the hill and I couldn't really see what was at the top. And, and he said, lean down and look again. And so when I leaned down and looked up the hill, there was this big house, two-story house, white pillars, looked very much like a plantation house to me. And I turned to him and said, like, like what, is, what is this house? And he said, that's John C. Calhoun's Fort Hill Plantation House. Clemson was built on Calhoun's plantation. And I was stunned. I, I had no idea. Uh, no one had said anything to me about the plantation history. Before I arrived, I had had a telephone interview because I was coming uh, as a postdoc. And um, I didn't know what to do. I, I didn't really feel comfortable <laughs> with, um, with historic plantations, but here I was, you know, I'd accepted the job, classes were about to start. And so I thought, well, I'll just incorporate it into my, my classes. I teach early African-American literature. My students that semester, I booked a tour for them. We went on the tour. Um, them separate, and then I went later um, both times, no mention of the history of enslavement or stories about enslaved people. Um, when I went on the tour and asked why not, I was told that subject was too controversial. I still wanted to know more about that history, so I just started asking questions and uh, looking for myself. Uh, Clemson has a special collections and archive on campus. Uh, I learned that there was a schedule of slaves when the, when the plantation was sold in 1854. And so um, I went to the archive that day and um, found the box and Thomas Green Clemson, our founder's papers, opened that box and saw 50 names. And um, that's probably when the project began, uh, when I learned that we did have information. And so as I continued to look for information about enslaved people, um, I found other information about African-American sharecroppers and tenant farmers uh, and domestics who were working at Fort Hill during Reconstruction for Thomas Green Clemson. I learned that 
uh, mostly black convict workforce that had been leased from the state of South Carolina built the college between 1890 and 1915. It didn't stop there. Once the college opened, black people were hired to work as janitors and in the laundry, in the mess hall, um, on the farm. Uh, and it continued as, as the cadets, uh, Clemson was a military school, uh, opened, established in 1889, classes started in 1893. The cadets had dances. That was their big social outlet. Uh, so I learned that they started hiring African-American musicians to come and perform as early as 1920. And then I soon learned about integration. Uh, Harvey Gantt filed a lawsuit to gain admission to Clemson. In January of 1963, he registered for classes. And the story kind of stopped there. It was a peaceful integration. Clemson's very proud that you know, riots and, and violence didn't break out when Harvey Gantt enrolled. But I thought, what happened after Harvey Gantt enrolled? What, what about the other students who came uh, because of, of that historic moment when African-Americans are allowed to enroll at Clemson? So I started learning about um, African-Americans in that first decade was kind of the first phase up to about 1972 when um, Dr. James Bostick Jr. becomes the first African-American to earn a PhD. So I had all these stories <laughs> and these stories weren't available publicly anywhere. They weren't really included in Clemson's public history. Um, you couldn't go to the website and find this information. Uh, if you went to the library, you could go and, and ask for the papers to be pulled out of the archive. Uh, but most people didn't have the opportunity to do that. Um, so we set up a website and then um, also started using social media. I gave the project a name, the Call My Name Project. And then um, the project kept growing. <laughs> we kept finding stories. So I started thinking about writing a book. And um, shortly thereafter, that whole process began for getting the book out to the public. And talk to us a little bit about the importance of the phrase, call my name. How did you, how did you come to that? Well, it took a while, I'll say that. I started first by calling the project the Susan Project. And I, I, I chose that name because Susan was an enslaved person who was owned first by John C. Calhoun and his wife. Uh, they gave her as a wedding present uh, to their daughter, Anna. Uh, around the time she married Thomas Green Clemson. And so then her name becomes Susan Calhoun Clemson. Um, and then uh, Susan got married, uh, we think around the 1850s. Her last name became Richardson. And when I first got to Clemson, she was one of the visible enslaved peoples whose stories uh, have, have, had been told. And I think it was because of her association with both the Calhoun and Clemson families. So Susan was kind of the face of that history. And so I thought, well, maybe I'll name the project in her honor. Um, but as the project grew beyond the antebellum period and started including these other generations, we eventually call them, of the sharecroppers, of the convicted laborers, of the wage workers, you know, the musicians, the integration generation, I thought I needed a name that would encompass all of that history. So I started thinking about call and response. It's an African-American cultural tradition where a speaker or a musician 
uh, interacts with the audience, right? So if you're in church and a preacher is preaching, people are going to start saying amen and shouting. And together, something different happens than if you're just speaking and there's no response. You know, the minister will start responding to those amens. If you're performing in a, a jazz um, combo, you know, and you start playing and somebody starts riffing off of what you're playing, or if you're at a concert and someone is singing and the audience starts singing with you, um, there's this incredible energy that is produced with call and response. Well, I knew that much of the information that I needed to tell these stories is not going to be in the archive. It's going to be in the community. So we thought, if I start calling these names out loud and kind of putting them out in the world, what kind of response would we get? How would people in the local communities, maybe people around the world who have moved away from South Carolina, would they respond and help us tell these stories, piece these stories back together and share them with the public? So that was the main reason, but call and response also is rooted in Clemson traditions. So we're a military school. That's the way Clemson started. And so I thought about those cadences that the cadets would be singing and saying as they went around campus. And there's a call and response to that cadence. There's right a lead person and those who are marching or running are responding you know, to the leader. Uh, in my classroom, I call the names of my students. I ask them to learn each other's names so that they can respond. You know, they don't say, hey, you are that person. They call the person's name and that person responds. Also at graduation at Clemson, every student hears their name called one last time before they walk across the stage to receive their diploma. And so for me, it fused together the African-American traditions with the Clemson tradition. And so it became the Call My Name Project. That's fascinating. And, and it's so important to be able to hear how meaningful that is and, and why you chose, chose that, that phrase as, as the title of the project. Um, I will also mention to our listeners, we do have a long list of resources on the podcast page. And one of them is your TEDx talk, which was in Greenville, South Carolina, here in the upstate. And it's called The Power in Calling a Name. And so I definitely would recommend folks check that out on our podcast page, or you can just Google it and, and come across it. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you is for our listeners, can you describe how the book is organized? The book actually follows that call and response um, tradition. So it has call and response sections where we have a story about an African-American in Clemson history that I share. And then there are contributors who respond to those stories. So that's kind of the, the larger framework of the book. And then interspersed between those call and response sections are four chapters that talk about how the project came to be commenting. Uh, it talks a little bit about how Clemson's history project, that larger initiative, uh, which was you know, pretty minimal when I got to Clemson in 2007, but because of a series of events, um, most importantly, the, the murders of nine parishioners at the Mother Emanuel Church uh, was kind of a turning point for the university and, and deciding they really needed to tell the complete story. Uh, and it also talks a little bit about me. Um, I write a little bit about my own 
experience as a sixth generation South Carolinian uh, who left the state when I was two years old uh, with my family, uh, but came back an awful lot because both parents um, were born in South Carolina and we were here probably every year of my childhood, uh, several times a year visiting with family. So it interweaves those three threads um, telling this really complicated narrative about how a South Carolina born professor comes back home, so to speak, learns about this history, this forgotten history and decides um, the only way I can stay at Clemson is to try and document and share that, that story. Well, it's definitely important work, and I'm, I'm sure doing all of the research that you've had to do for the book, um, you know, not only has been meaningful, but is also very enlightening, especially for people who really don't know about that specific history of, uh, you know, one of our major universities in the state. So. Uh, kudos. Um, one of the other things that I wanted to ask you is if you could talk to our listeners about maybe one of the more interesting uh, stories uh, that is in the book. And if you, you know, might happen to happen to have a, a section, uh, you know, a short paragraph or so that you would, uh, wouldn't mind reading us, that would be great. Uh, sure. Yeah, there, there's so many good stories. It's, it's really hard to choose. Um, I'll tell you about one story and then I'll focus in on another. Uh, one of the stories that, that people love to hear is the story of Duke Ellington uh, performing at Clemson in 1955. And as I was researching that, that event, I learned that George Bennett, um, who was a student at Clemson at the time, uh, was the person who actually booked that concert. He was working in the athletics department found out about him, met him, and then as I was writing the book, had an opportunity to interview him. So he was able to tell me about the whole process of booking Duke Ellington, meeting him at the train, driving him around Clemson, uh, and spending a glorious weekend with Duke Ellington and his orchestra performing three concerts on campus, including um, performing a song, especially for his mother, at one of the concerts. Um, George Bennett's mom was able to come to one of the concerts. So those are the kinds of things that start to happen when you start piecing these stories together. Uh, there are people that are still alive who are connected to this history or who are descendants of people who are connected to this history. And they are able to respond to those calls that we put out uh, and help us tell the story. Um, but the story that I, I wanna focus on is one that, um, is, is one of the harder stories that I have to tell. Um, when I started researching convict labor, I was, I was told that about 50 black convicted laborers were um, responsible for the building of the college. And I didn't know anything about convict leasing in South Carolina. Um, I was looking for the records and people told me the records didn't exist. Um, no one at Clemson seemed to know a whole lot. I was like, there's a little bit of information in the the minutes from the trustees reports, um, but not a whole lot. I wanted names, of course, call my name. There are no names in the minutes. So I kept searching, writing, calling, and finally um, someone suggested that I contact the state archive. So I sent an email to the archive and the very next morning, 
um, I got a response and was told that, yes, we have court records and we have registers and we have, you know, demographic information and we have pardons and we have, um, you know, records of escapes. And it just went on and on and on. And I thought, oh my goodness, these records have been sitting in the archive all this time. So they sent me a list uh, of the registers and the registers had prison numbers, names, and notes. So it would say escaped or they were sent to the site or brought back from the site or released. But I didn't know anything about who these people were, who these, and I thought they were all men, who these men were. So I knew I had to go to the archive. So I arranged to sneak over to the archive that first year as often as I could. And I would take the prison number and look in the register, um, the roles, and it would have, you would find the number and then you would start reading across the page, their name, their age, um, you know, information about uh, hair color, skin color, et cetera, their crime, their conviction, their sentence, all of that. So I'm going through this list, you know, name by name by name, and I get to um, the name of Simon Davis. Um, got his prison number, and I'm, I'm reading it across the page, and I get to the column with age, and I'm looking at that number, and I'm saying that can't be. And I looked closer, and the number was 12. And I thought, how on earth did a 12-year-old boy get assigned to labor at Clemson. So I was curious about him. And I'm going to read um, a couple of sections from my book where I talk about Simon. When I returned to South Carolina, I headed back to the state archives. As I began scanning the pages of the descriptive role for the prison numbers of convicts assigned to Clemson College, confirming their names and then recording demographic details and court records, least laborers became men and more teenagers until prison number 10930. Name, Davis Simon. Occupation, farmer. Age, that can't be a... I grab my iPhone, snap a picture of the number noted in the age column. Then I take two fingers and swipe them across the screen to enlarge the snapshot. Heartbeat quickens, breath shortens, eyes mist, age 12. I run my fingers across the page, tracing the record of Davis's stint in South Carolina's penal system. Sex, male, color, colored, place of nativity, Abbeville County, height, four feet, 11 inches, offense, burglary and larceny, number, first offense, remarks, small scar, right cheek, both little fingers crooked. Davis appeared before Judge J.B. Fraser in the Abbeville County Court of General Sessions in June 1892. The judge examined the evidence, found Davis guilty, and sentenced him to five years of hard labor in the state penitentiary, June 11, 1892 to June 16, 1897. Davis's name appears in the Farm and Contract Register for Clemson College for convicts assigned to the college in 1894, which means he had likely turned 13 by the time the penitentiary deemed him eligible for leasing by Clemson trustees. However, the space in the notes column next to his name is empty. Details that could provide insights into whether or not he ever worked at Clemson were omitted. 
Yet his early releases are trained on notices I've researched and documented a predominantly African-American convict labor crew who built Clemson College. Davis was discharged nearly six months early on January 16, 1897, which means he was likely leased. Convicts who worked at Clemson frequently were awarded early release, perhaps in recognition of their forced labor for the state. That's, I, I, I'm, you know, people can't see me because this is a podcast, but all I could do is shake my head. You know, it's one of those things where you, you look back at uh, our history, you know, as humans, and you think where we've been and where we are today and where we're going. And Simon's story really does take a piece of our history of the late 1800s and, and you know, opens it wide open. That's just amazing. Yes, it is. And I, I think the amazing thing about the men, and now I say men and boys, uh, who were leased um, by Clemson trustees to, to build a college is that most of them were under the age of 25, um, the vast majority. Most of them were convicted of some form of theft. And like Simon, they're often, Simon stole a piece of jewelry and some food. Um, most of them were stealing clothing, food, grain. They would sell the grain. Um, they were crimes of desperation. Mm -hmm. Now, there was no welfare system you know, back at that time. Um, this was a time when the, there was a concerted move in South Carolina to disenfranchise uh, African-Americans, uh, to make it very difficult for them to find jobs so they could work and take care of their families. Um, so overwhelmingly, they're stealing to feed themselves, to clothe themselves and their families. Sometimes it's baby clothes, men stealing baby clothes, right, for their children. and. So to see that a 12-year-old is you know, stealing you know, food and a, and a piece of jewelry and then gets five years, he spends his whole you know, the formative years, those important years um, in the state penitentiary. There's no juvenile justice system, right? So he's in the same population with older men for that time. Mm, it's, it's, it's very eye-opening and at the same time shocking and disappointing, but you know, again, important to understand about where we've been and, and where we're going. So, so thank you for, for that story. One of the things I like to do since this is Library Voices is mm -hmm. ask our um, participants if you have any library-related stories you'd like to share. And it could be something personal or it could be something professional-related about doing the book, whatever you, whatever you want to tell us. I think the, my big library story for this book is spending time in the archives. I think that if I, if I had a second life, it would be as an archivist. So um, the stories of the convicted laborers, um, I mentioned um, Simon Davis, there's also a 13-year-old named Wade Foster. And Wade was the first teenager that young um, that I found in the archive, in the library, same kind of experience, right? Saw the number, took a photo, blew it up on my iPhone. But with Wade, um, the connection was stronger because he was born in Spartanburg, the same town that I was born in. So that was a moment where we were able to read through uh, the court records and actually piece together his story. There's, there's a statement from him in um, that record 
where he talks about his neighborhood. So after he talked, after we read that and carefully kind of documented it, we were able to drive to Spartanburg and retrace his steps. Um, there was also information like his parents' names, his uncle's name, where his parents lived, uh, these tiny little details, the fact that he had gone to church the night before. So we were able to do some more research in the library about what churches were around uh, in the late 1800s where he might have gone to church, found a church. Uh, it was pretty amazing that a document that had been designed to convict him actually was the document that we were able to use to restore his humanity, you know, to give him a story that, that took him away from um, the, the correction system and presented him again as a 13-year-old uh, who also is caught up in this, this crazy world um, that is emerging for, for Blacks in South Carolina in the late 1800s. So those are my favorite kinds of stories. Um, I, I mentioned finding the, the schedule of, of enslaved people from 1854 uh, in the archives, um, reading letters. Um, there's a, a story of Izzy. Izzy is a, um, a, a teenager, or she may have been, you know, maybe between 10 and 13. She's enslaved on the Fort Hill Plantation. Uh, there are letters that were supposed to be destroyed <laughs> uh, because Izzy tried to burn the house down. And Mrs. Calhoun writes to um, one of her children about this incident, and she's like, burn the letter. He didn't burn the letter, right? And somehow that letter found its way to uh, a library, to an archive, and it was preserved. And that's the only little shred of evidence that we have about that incident with Izzy that we would not have known about had it not been preserved in that letter and then preserved in a library. Uh, so for me, libraries are like a, you know, a gold mine. You know, they're, they're places where you go. Uh, and for, for those of us who do um, research on early African-American history, uh, sometimes the archive appears to be a place where those stories are not readily available, but it's the reading of those documents where you see snippets of the lives that you can take those tiny little pieces and then create that beautiful mosaic that gives life to individuals again, uh, even when it's not their own voice, their ways to read into those stories. Um, so I love the thrill of the hunt and that's the hunt for stories in libraries and in archives. And it is amazing, and thank you for for saying that. But the you know the the wealth of information that libraries and archives has is it's just incredible. And I've been working in libraries for over thirty years, so it still amazes me to know you know and, and to continuously find come across things in our collection that I had no idea you know would have been there. Um, one of the things that you mentioned about trying to do research uh, to find more information. Uh, about, you know, African-American history. One of the things we've done at the South Carolina State Library uh, within the last year or two is subscribe to ProQuest's Historical Black Newspapers Database. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's things like this that no other library in the state had been subscribing to this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, why is that? And, well, we're a specialty library, so we should provide this access. And so, um, that is the kind of amazing stuff that libraries do. And unfortunately, we don't have the, 
the PR budget like uh, private sector does. So a lot of people have to find this, this on their own. We do do our best to get the word out about these things, but um, you know, we do rely on people who are doing research and, and need this information to try to find it. So, so thank you for mentioning that. Um, and as we wrap up, I just wanted to ask if you have any kind of special upcoming projects that you'd like to mention. We actually do. Uh, Black History Month is coming up in February and Common Name partners with Clemson University. Our Black History Month program is sponsored by the Harvey and the Cinda Gantt Multicultural Center on our campus. So this year we are doing several things. Uh, everything will start on January 31st. Uh, on that day, there will be a book talk uh, about Call My Name Clemson. Um, I will be there along with all of my contributors uh, on that Zoom call. Um, so it will start at 4 o'clock, go to 5.30. Um, and then starting that day also, we're having what we call a Call My Name Journey. So every day of the month in February, there will, there will be hopefully a new story. For some of the generations, it's a little bit harder. Generation two during Reconstruction, we have very little information about African Americans during that time. But we're going to do our best to either provide a new story or new information about stories that we've already told. And that will go out every day. There'll be an email blast and it will be on our social media accounts. And then the next thing that we're going to do is um, have on the 28th to end the month, we will have a day long series of events. So I have started doing what we call heritage runs with our athletes on campus. So they run uh, to different spots on campus and hear stories of African-Americans that are associated with those spots. It takes about an hour for them to do that. Uh, they've been very successful. So we decided to offer it to the whole campus, but it will be uh, a 5K run instead. Um, so if people wanna run and stop, they'll be able to run and stop or they can do the whole loop. Uh, we also will have a campus-wide walk. Uh, it'll be the same trail uh, where people can walk the campus, that 5K trail, and learn about African-American history at each of the stops. Uh, we also will be offering limited walking tours of the historic district in the center of campus, and that's around the Fort Hill Plantation House, but also the buildings that were built by the convicted laborers and some other spots that are of interest to African-American history. And finally, there will be a tour, uh, tours offered of the cemetery, which includes the African-American burial ground. Uh, last summer, we had um, some researchers come who recovered uh, 604 unmarked graves. And we believe those graves are African-Americans um, beginning in the early 1800s through possibly the mid um, 1900s, around 1940 or so. Um, so we offer tours back in the fall and we will offer uh, another set of tours on the afternoon of the 28th of February and the public will be invited to come to campus and take part in those tours as well. So all of this information will be um, provided on our website, callmyname.org, uh, and also through the Clemson University's uh, Black History Month um, publicity materials that will be available that way as well. Great, that's wonderful. It's, it's so good to hear that you've got so many um, educational opportunities available, uh, not only to your local community, but to you know, anyone who is interested 
uh, out there about this amazing project. So I would um, like to just thank you so much for the work that you're doing and thank you for joining us today. And one phrase that you said that the project does that really has stuck with me is saying that it restores humanity. And I really do think that that's a very important thing to, to mention because what these projects do is that really attempts to restore humanity by through education and through our history. So thank you so much for, for being with us. Thank you, Curtis. It's been a pleasure. And I appreciate the opportunity to talk about Call My Name and introduce it to um, a wider audience here in South Carolina and around the world. Well, thank you so much. And thank you to our listeners. You can find Library Voices SC on Podbean, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio, or add us on your favorite podcast app. Our podcast website address is libraryvoices.podbean.com. We also love hearing from our listeners, so please send us your comments and suggestions for future topics. Library Voices SC is the official podcast of the South Carolina State Library. So until next time, this is Curtis Rogers. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>